Welcome back to Screen Time with Rowan Roper. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. Today we talk about the old and the new. A new Saturday Night Live and a new look for Saturday Night Live. We'll talk about that next. But also the old. Martin Scorsese, who is old, is complaining <laughs> that young people don't like old movies. And we'll talk about that. He has a point, but so do the youngsters. <laughs> they all have their points. And, of course, for a lot of folks, old movies means anything with Molly Ringwald in it. That's an old-timey movie right there. Screen Time with Rowan Roper is being brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing, all designed to drive your business success. Because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com for all the information. in the entertainment industry were wondering what is Saturday Night Live going to do in the post-Trump era? And what I think we're seeing here is a change. This is not your grandfather's or your father's or even your older brother's Saturday Night Live anymore, is it? I do think the one common thread through the generations about SNL is that it remarkably retains its status and its prestige as must-see television, along with sports this is one of the few things that you really kind of want to watch live. Now, I know a lot of people these days, they just get their bite-sized chunks of the most memorable sketches the next morning because you can get them all over the place from NBC, et cetera, et cetera. I like watching it live when I can just for that immediacy. And you mentioned, you know, there was it was such a Trump-heavy show for the last couple of years. And honestly, Ro, I thought the comedy suffered because of that. It was very preachy. Whether you agree with the politics or not is beside the point. It's about whether or not it's funny. And Alec Baldwin, who I love doing Donald Trump, I have to feel like some of those cast members were like, what the heck, man? You know, in the mid-70s, Jack Lemmon and, uh, and Jack Nicholson didn't come in every week <laughs> and hijack the show. And I, I like and I like the fact that Jim Carrey says he's not going to do Joe Biden. He did it a couple of times. He doesn't want to keep doing it. I didn't think it was a great Joe Biden anyway. I like when the cast members are playing the real-life politicians. And it's very interesting now because a lot of the times on SNL, they have the women playing the male politicians. Right. Well, specifically, they are playing Republican men. It started a few years ago when Jeff Sessions was played by Kate McKinnon, yeah. right, with the big ears. <laughs> Same height. And the idea was that it was making Trump nuts that women were playing <laughs> Republican men. I don't know if that's true, but they kept with that theme, including on Saturday night, A.D. Bryant played Ted Cruz. <laughs> it's really funny. And it goes back, we talk about stunt guest casting, and I did like when Melissa McCarthy played Sean Spicer with that kind of mobile <laughs> lectern podium thing that she yes. would drive around in and everything. It was so over the top, so funny. I also think that this is a very, very talented cast, Ro. Uh, and the other thing to do in SNL now is, you know, it used to be the, the not ready for primetime players. The original group on SNL, I was in high school, you were in diapers, it was a long time ago, but it was like, it were like five people. You know, maybe seven all together. That was it. So they say, it's Saturday Night Live. And then it'd be about a 40-second introduction. The introduction now lasts longer than the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl. Because <laughs> they do all the cast members. And you're like, wow, that's pretty good. And then it's like, and featuring. And then there's four more people. And finally, these people who aren't invited to the Tuesday <laughs> script sessions. You know, I mean, it's like some of them have been on the show for years. And they still haven't made full-fledged cast member. I'm sure that's got a lot to do with things like salary, yeah. among other things. Because some of the... Some of the 
featured supposedly, you know, secondary players seem to be in more skits than some of the featured players. But overall, I think it's a terrific cast. I think they're they're deep, they're talented. You've got veterans now. You mentioned Kate McKinnon. Uh, Keenan Thompson has been on the show the longest of any SNL member ever. It's 17 years, I believe. When he started in the early 2000s, it was young Jimmy Fallon. It was Amy Poehler. I mean, they were just coming up into their own, and he's still, Keenan's still still bringing it every week. I just read the story because he's got the new Keenan sitcom out yeah. and how important it was for him to get a sitcom with his own name on it. Feels like that's really the pinnacle of his career. I kind of disagree with that. I think his career will be best known for his work on Saturday Night Live because it is so enduring. It has gone on, and he's done everything. And Lauren Michaels even said that the guy's a genius because he's capable of doing anything at any time. You throw him anything, and he can do it. I think he goes into the top five or top ten in terms of maybe not the biggest stars because then you think of the Bill Murrays and the Adam Sandlers and Eddie Murphys and Kristen Wiggs who have had these enormous careers as movie and television stars. But in terms of being a cast member and what they contribute, I agree with Lauren and with you. He's MVP. Uh, of all time, because he is so flexible, he's capable of doing it all. And no matter what he does, he brings it. It's yeah. always funny. He's actually best when he's put upon, too. And he's yeah. the game show host who can't deal with, with yeah. the stupidity. With the idiots around him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, he came up, too, as a you know Nickelodeon children's star. And he's got such a likability to him and, and such an endearing persona but he's always had a little bit of an edge to him with his with his comedic uh, performances which works perfect for SNL I also thought uh, this most recent episode of Saturday Night Live is a continued celebration and I give them all the credit in the world for uh, the diversification of the cast and the hosts and the musical acts you know a few years ago wasn't that long ago SNL was kind of called on the carpet because even though they had had a lot of female cast members going all the way back to Jane Curtin and Gilda Radner of course uh, they did not have a lot of women of color through the years. One of the first skits had uh, Egon Wodum playing a host with Reggie Jean Page and the aforementioned Keenan Thompson and Chris Redd, friend of ours who's wonderful. The conceit was Keenan was playing Ice Cube and the other two had talked about how they were British actors. So he pretended that he was actually <laughs> from Great Britain itself. And, you know, we, we should probably get to a point where you don't even notice this, but the fact that everybody on that skit was a person of color, it was, it was brilliant. But that was something that wasn't even possible even five or six years ago on SNL. Not the criticism early of SNL, though, being like a white person show. In New York, it was criticized for being an Upper West Side show. Eddie Murphy changed that completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it. The biggest star in the history of Saturday Night Live is Eddie Murphy. Yes. And there was criticism in the early 1980s about the show not being diverse enough. But then they did maybe the smartest, greatest skit, or certainly in the top 10 of all time, which is when, when, when Eddie Murphy dresses up as a white guy in white drag and mm. gets on a bus and wa- and encounters New York City as a white man. Mm-hmm. It was controversial at the time, but turned out to be one of those signature cultural moments. I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but you're right. When SNL first came out, it was an elitist, snob, Harvard Lampoon-esque type of show. Even the host, they'd have people, and I know a lot of people don't know these names, but like Buck Henry and Ralph Nader and Paul Simon would play almost every other week as the musical <laughs> guest. It was sort of like you were going to Lauren Michaels' house in the Hamptons. Right. And oh, by the way, we're going to do some entertainment. And then it kind of got, it went from that. It was very smart comedy, but if you go back to there's this tendency to say, oh, it's never been better than it was in the original years. There were a lot of skits that bombed back then. You oh, just God. don't see them because it's, you see the greatest hits. 
you know, when they, when you, so you'll see, you know, the Blues Brothers and you'll see uh, Chevy, Ch I'm Chevy Chase and you're not and things like that. But a lot of the stuff bombed. I mean, you, you can watch old episodes of SNL and the audience, is, you, you, it doesn't sound like there is an audience there because there's almost no laughter. And then it did have kind of a frat boy mentality for a while going there, as you mentioned, as it developed. But Eddie Murphy changed the, the culture forever. And over the years, I, again, I give it a lot of credit. It has grown with the times. And let's not forget that Richard Pryor was one of the earliest guest hosts. And, of course, famously, they said they put him on a seven-second delay in case he swore, but the show was always on a seven-second delay. He did one of the craziest and most controversial skits of all time with Chevy Chase in the employment office, <laughs> in which the N-word gets used as a punchline. Yeah, and that one uh, does not show up when they do the 40th anniversary and the 42nd anniversary and the 43rd and a half anniversary specials for SNL. They don't usually play that skit in its entirety. So it always was edgy, maybe even more so back in the day, as was a lot of humor in the 70s. But again, we see things now that we do not see on a regular basis if we go back in time. The musical act, the sensation known as Bad Bunny, the Puerto Rican <laughs> sensation, which I love. I know him from the Corona commercials. I think that was Donnie Darko's plot as well. Uh, but the musical numbers were, were beautiful, first of all, I thought, and just gorgeously done and performed in Spanish, which is pretty cool. And then we talked about Reggae Jean Page, the star of Bridgerton, and that's the theme if you're Phoebe Bridgers. You get to smash a guitar. If you're on Bridgerton, you get to be on the show. So I think Jeff Bridgers will probably <laughs> oh. be hosting. Oh, wow. But uh, Went a he long was great. way for that. He was he was uh, he was great. Reggie Jean Page as uh, the host. Uh, he is he is uh, impossibly disturbingly handsome fellow, and they played off of that in the opening uh, monologue, which was really good. But he he proved to be a gamer. He kind of had a little bit of that John Hamm quality, where we just think of him as this. Leading man. I mean, this guy could play James Bond. You know, I mean, he's got the, he's I believe, got the style I, I would to like do it, right? To, I'm sorry. i got to interrupt you there yeah. because I just want to take full credit for this. After the first episode of Bridgerton, I called you and said, this guy will be James Bond. And he's got a British accent, it turns out. So he's not just <laughs> works. He's not affecting that for the show, as we learned in the in the SNL. I got to got to mention one other uh, number. You know, people always talk about like after weekend update, they kind of have the lesser comedic sketches on SNL. But sometimes some of the best stuff comes later on. And there was a really cool sketch. And you talk about SNL and what they've taken on, whether it's politics or you know gender issues. Or social issues, certainly race over the years. But one of the few things that they haven't done a lot of, and, and most comedy doesn't, is uh, spirituality and religion and faith and God. And they had this fantastic number where the black family comes over to meet the white family at the white family's house. And the white family looks straight out of the evangelical playbook, right? And they're going to say a little prayer before they sit down to eat. And then the black family engages in a prayer. And then it takes off from there. <laughs> What I love about that particular bit, Ro, is that they could have just had fun and poked easy fun at religion and stereotypes about different types of faith. But it actually ended up being this really kind of spiritual unity moment, which you don't expect from Saturday Night Live. They don't really have a choice, though, because there are so many trolls because of social media and all the rest of the way that our culture has devolved. And no matter what they did, I'm sure they took flack for it 
regardless of how unifying the sure. the final sure. outcome of that skit was. You're absolutely right about that. I guarantee you there are people saying, I don't need to have God spoon-fed to me in my comedy, and this is what happened to me in my church experience, right. and since when did SNL cross over to the evangelical side, and blah, 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 blah. When are we finally going to say, who gives a shit what the haters think or say? Never. Because Every, everybody cares. Well, that's the problem. Everybody now has an equal voice in it. Saturday Night Live was invented to be a broadcast show. It was invented to be contraventional. It was invented to be provocative. Sure. So <laughs> we now live in a world where we're afraid to actually encourage open and free thought. The things that are forbidden are the things that have always been forbidden. Criminal acts, acts of overt hatred and acts of overt violence. Yes, I get all that. That's not what this is about. Mm. I seed your point here because that particular sketch, I kept thinking, okay, this is going to turn into some sort of social commentary or satire about religion. It didn't. And I thought, okay, well, it, it was pleasing, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really what put Saturday Night Live on the map. Oh, that's just because you're a heathen. Though those of us who really have... <laughs> okay. <laughs> you might that's, be right. That's just because you're one of those heathens in the media. Yeah, you might be right. And maybe that's an old guy complaint. But speaking of old guy complaints, coming up in 30 <laughs> seconds, we're going to talk about Martin Scorsese's new commentary in Harper's, and you want to talk about overreactions. I'm Bob Burke, founder and chairman of Burke America Parts Group, a family of brands that includes RepairClinic.com, an appliance and HVAC parts solution company that's grown into an international brand. Before AmericanEagle.com, we partially launched a new technology platform developed by another firm. American Eagle helped take our technology to a whole new level with digital marketing, software development, and business insights into our key markets, appliances, HVAC, and outdoor power equipment, and did so both on time and on budget. AmericanEagle.com has the resources, experience, and talent needed to produce solutions. Our new technology platform developed by AmericanEagle.com has produced tremendous results with higher traffic, conversion, engagement, and online revenue. If you have any home repairs you need to take care of, check us out at RepairClinic.com. If you need a world-class website or technology project, then I would highly recommend AmericanEagle.com. Call AmericanEagle.com at 773-NETWORK. That's AmericanEagle.com, 773-NETWORK. Now starring in Grumpy Old Men 4, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, who's upset that the youngsters don't like old movies. This is the third or fourth time where Martin Scorsese has talked about um, how he feels kind of overwhelmed by streaming content like we all do and how it's kind of flattened out the beauty and the art of cinema. He famously talked about how the Marvel movies weren't cinema and people were all up in arms about that. And it's like, well, it kind of depends on what your definition of cinema is. It usually is kind of used to kind of describe a certain art house quality, yeah. old-fashioned, 70-millimeter print type of movie. And in that case, you'd say, well, you know, the Avengers movies are, are movies. But it's interesting this time, Ro, because Martin Scorsese penned this lovely essay for Harper's. And it's really about him and his lost youth and the movies he grew up on. He tells the story actually cinematically. He starts off with, you know, a, a description like he would if he were writing a script about a young boy in 1950s New York, and that would be Martin Scorsese. And he talks about going past all these theaters where the films of Fellini and Truffaut and Hitchcock were playing. And then he talk, then he kind of shifts into the first person and talks about how he got to know a lot of these filmmakers, became friends with Fellini, lived in Rome for a while, and then eventually talks about how content has a different meaning. It used to mean, you know, quality 
material. And now everything is content, whether it's a a, a cat video or somebody <laughs> right. falling down their porch because it's icy and the you know the burglar cam catches it, or the latest film. That's what he's lamenting. That's all true, but I think about this a lot. In my own life, I have always been stuck in another era when it comes to consuming those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. I love old film. I love things going back to the silent era all the way through the 1970s New York movement because when you watch it now in the 2020s, you see eternal truths. You see eternal art. You see things that were true then that are true now, and you can then extrapolate that they may have been true hundreds or thousands of years ago as they are now. And that, Mm -hmm. to me, is the fascinating part of the sociology of film. Well, I have never met or talked to a younger director who wasn't a huge fan and student of older movies. I mean, encyclopedic knowledge, usually, when you're talking about the Quentin Tarantinos, the Guy Ritchies of the world. And I remember, actually, you know, Tom Cruise, who's not a director, but is obviously a producer and a huge star. Whatever you think about Tom Cruise, he told me, he told me this a couple of different times, He's actually asked me for recommendations. He watches every single day. He makes it a point to watch at least one movie he's never seen before, even when he's in the middle of making a movie because he might spend 40 minutes in a makeup trailer or between scenes. And he watches a new movie every single day. And he says, I'll never get to the bottom of the the well because there are so many films. (laughs) And that's the thing that we're getting with Scorsese, this backlash. And it's not just about Scorsese, although a lot of people are doing these memes and stuff like all Scorsese ever did was movies about the mob. And that's like saying all Shakespeare did was family comedies and tragedies. I mean, you know, the, the Scorsese movies are about so much more than that. And if we have right. to explain that to folks, that means they haven't seen the films. Uh, but there's this larger, broader movement you see on social media, especially on Twitter, where people are saying all old movies should essentially be canceled, that nobody should watch old movies because anything that was made before like 2005 had a different sensibility, of course. you know. And listen, there's a lot of truth to this. There are a lot of movies that were homophobic, that portrayed an America that was only a white America that reduced women to, you know, roles of dames in skirts and secretaries. We get all that. And even some films that we love, like the John Hughes movies, for example, are famously brought up. Look, John Hughes' movies were about uh, white, upper, middle-class suburbia in the 80s and 90s. That's what he knew. That's what he wrote about. And, yeah, you look at something like Sixteen Candles, a movie I love, and then you look at a character like Long Duck, dong and no that character doesn't get past the script stage but i don't think it means you should never watch 16 candles you watch it and go well that's horrible they shouldn't have had that character portrayed that way a lot of this other stuff is really funny but here's the point that's always been there the things that last forever are the things that actually have these universal themes so when you look at the movies that are coming out in 2021 i think you'll know in 2121 what's still going to be culturally relevant and what's not if you go back to 1921 and you look Certainly. at what came from that. It's all about the context and seeing where the culture and the country was at a particular moment in time. Uh, there's this great Netflix series out right now called Amend. And it's uh, Will Smith hosting a six-part series about the 14th Amendment, abolishing slavery, but all, also all the offshoots and how the women's movement and how other movements, gay, gay marriage, you know, came under the umbrella of the 14th Amendment. But it also does a pretty deep dive into the, the culture of cinema, row. And one of the things they talk about is, you know, of course, the birth of a nation. D.W. Griffith, the most famous movie of its generation from the 1910s, I think it's 1915 or 16, right around there. 
and it paints the KKK as the heroes in the in the film. I mean, it's a it's an amazing achievement of filmmaking. But like Lenny Riefenstahl's propaganda for Hitler yeah. in the '30s, it's it's got a horrific message. And Gone with the Wind is a film recently. You know, they, they talk about now if it's going to play on cable, there's going to be discussions before and after about what it was all about and how it celebrated the South. I think that's a good thing. I don't think you should burn the movie. I think you watch the film and. In that vein, we have the one of the original trailers for Gone with the Wind, which oh, is kind of horrifying. Give it a listen. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here, in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in books. For it is no more than a dream remembered. A civilization gone with the wind. You know what's really funny about that? The happy days of slavery. You still hear people making that argument. Well, the slaves, they enjoyed it. Yeah, they got you know, steady employment and they were well fed. It's just, it's just horrific to think that way. And there's definitely a lot of people who do feel that way. You know, that whole lost cause mentality in the early part of the 20th century that said that, again, that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery right. and things were better in the South. And we saw that recently in the culture row with all these battles over statues of these Confederate generals and soldiers. And you kept hearing people talking about, well, this is our heritage. And it's like most of those statues weren't even erected until the middle of the 20th century. They were not put up in 1872 or during the war, certainly, or even in the, the late 19th century. Those statues came up as part of this whole revisionist history saying that things weren't so bad in the Old South and these were great men. And in fact, they were traitors to the United States of America who tried to overturn our government. If that sounds familiar, you've been paying attention to recent history. Well said. There was a recent study looking at film consumption behavior for millennials versus people over the age of 50 and what movies they liked or they consumed and which they didn't. Mm. Millennials, by and large, will not watch movies statistically prior to when they were born. And certainly they don't want to watch black and white movies. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of them say they've never seen a black and white movie all the way through. That breaks my heart, first of all. And listen, every generation, when they're younger, there's a narcissistic thing that says nothing happened before I was born. I worked at a news station not that long ago where two producers happened to be in their late 20s. And at news meetings, when we would talk about things, whether it was about local history or national politics and maybe something like, you know, one of the Kennedy grandchildren would be coming in, something like that. And these two would always say, well, that was before my time, to excuse their ignorance. And I finally just, at one news meeting, I said to one, and this person happened to be a, a Christian, and I said, now, I know you're Catholic, as I am, and I said, you know, how old are you? And she said, oh, I'm 28. I said, well, Jesus was before your time, and you have no problem <laughs> believing in him. So, you know, this idea that if something happened before my time, it doesn't have relevance, you got to get over that. And first of all, don't tell me as a film critic, and I've been doing this now for 30 years, don't tell me that you love movies and then tell me that you've never seen a black and white movie. Don't tell me that you love movies, but you've never seen anything before 1990 because you're missing out. It's as if someone said, well, I, you know, I love rock and roll, but I, I don't want to listen to the Rolling Stones. You know, that's insane. You, right. it, you know, these things that you can't have one and not have the other. So I would just urge folks, if you do love movies and listen, I think there's a, a wealth of great cinema out there 
despite what Martin Scorsese might say, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, and For all sure. the other streaming platforms. And it's the platinum age of television. There's no doubt about that. But there's still time, Ro, to go back and watch classic films. And when I talk about classic films, they could be from 1987. They don't have to be from 1937. It's about curation, and this is one of the points that Martin Scorsese makes, is that mm. there's nobody out there curating. One of the powers of Turner Classic Movies is that before the big movies that they show, they have a host come on and explain something about the movie, mm -hmm. explain something specifically about the production yeah. or about the time or about the controversy surrounding it. And, of course, there's always a movie I haven't seen before, and when I learn about what that moment is, then I take a deeper dive while I'm watching the movie. I'll go to IMDb or to some other website, and I'll try to learn things about those actors and the producers and the mm -hmm. writers at the time because there's a reason that TCM is playing that movie. Criterion Collection is another example, yeah. oh, the Criterion yeah. Channel, which is doing the same thing. And it's important to put everything in context because then you're going to learn something. And it shouldn't necessarily be when you're watching a movie, oh, I have to learn something important. But if you do, it's okay. The thing is, too, Ro, and I go back, and a lot of times, you know, people ask me, well, do you watch movies uh, just for fun? And I do. You know, at the end of the day, sometimes, I, like anyone else, I love to click around. And sometimes I'll happen across something that's not necessarily a good film by any measure, but it's still fun to watch. And sometimes it's just fun to look at the fashions and the technology. I stumbled across a movie the other day called Cellular. And it's about a kidnapper, and Chris Evans, pre-Captain uh, America, happens to answer his cellular telephone, and it's the <laughs> wrong number, and then he gets caught in this whole thing. But they actually thought, you know, that was like there was a movie called The Net, you know, and it was about the internet. And uh, I, I recently saw a movie called 40 Days and 40 Nights, which is absolutely awful. Josh Hartnett plays a horny guy who's going to go 40 days and 40 nights without having sex. The only thing great about it is it has Shannon Sassman in it, who should have become a huge movie star. I love her. Love her in A Night's Tale. But... In this movie, and a lot of movies set right in the late 90s or made in the late 90s or early 2000s, they make fun of a guy because someone goes, this is my friend. He works for Solomon Smith Barney. You know, he's got a great job at the financial sector. He'll <laughs> never have to worry about his. And then this guy goes, oh, I heard you worked for one of those dot-coms. Ha, 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 a dot-com. That's so dumb. And I'm like, well, you know, oh, boy. that didn't age well. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there are crappy movies for the last 130 years. Absolutely. It does not matter. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff, and the good stuff does last, rises to the top, and is part of the cultural landscape. When people, 100 years from now, I always think about that. How will we be remembered? How will this era be remembered? Who did the right thing? Who did the wrong thing? A lot of that art will be the symbol of what went right in this era. But I have an interesting statistic for you, Richard Roper, and okay. I find this very interesting. All right. There is one movie in the top 10 most watched movies between the people over age 50 and millennials. One movie that does appear in that top 10 list at or near the top. Is it Cellular with a young Chris is, Evans? No, it was not a young Chris Evans. Oh, okay. Forrest Gump. Gump! I was going to say, I, I thought you were going to say It's a Wonderful Life. That would have been my guess. So Forrest Gump. No, It's a Wonderful Life in black and white. Who the hell would oh, be watching that? Yeah. yeah, no, the 10 most common movies millennials have seen, it's number two. Wow. And for the 10 most common movies people over 50 have seen, it's number one. Really? Yeah. And listen, it was a huge movie. Robert Zemeckis did a wonderful job. Tom Hanks won the Oscar. It shouldn't have won Best Picture because Pulp Fiction came out that year. That's another movie. That's an old movie people should check out. It's called Pulp Fiction. Check it out, folks. But I'm surprised that Forrest Gump has such a universal appeal. The only other movie that appears on both lists, Silence of the Lambs. Ah. Ah, we just talked about that. Yep. Yeah, you can get that if you check out the Screen Time podcast available almost anywhere where fine podcasts are heard. You can go back and hear last week's, this week's, and probably even next week's. Well, that's a good place to start wrapping this thing up. But before we go, 
who to follow. I got a good one for you this week, Ro. It's at Craig Weekend, and it is a Twitter account with more than 100,000 followers. And once a week, on Friday, they send out the same tweet, and it's Daniel Craig on Saturday Night Live, and the musical guest is The Weekend, and he says... Ladies and gentlemen, The Weekend. I have to say, <laughs> Daniel Craig sells it, though. <laughs> it's, it is the best introduction to The Weekend ever because he's Shakespearean. It's a Shakespearean weekend. It's one Twitter account that never gets into any controversy. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There will be some. Why do you have to, to celebrate The Weekend? What's wrong with the weekdays? Right. Oh, you're an elitist. Oh, oh, you have a weekend. Must yeah, be nice must to have be a weekend. Nice to have two days every week. Oh man, God! I it's just I want to blame Vladimir Putin for all of the trolls. Sure, it just makes me feel better about life. Okay, the Road Rubber Podcast is being brought to us by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and basically whatever you need on your computer. Go to AmericanEagle.com for all the information. Executive producers for Screen Time with Rowan Roper, Tim Alanius, and Renee Nelson. Our musical and production director, Brian Altimer. And please remember to follow us, subscribe, and tell your friends about Screen Time. See you next time.